You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. Uh, over the summer, I, I received an indictment from a close friend, uh, an ac- kind of accusation. Uh, we'd been having a number of conversations about the Christian life and uh, what it means to be a Christian. And um, uh, this was my friend's indictment to me. Here's, I actually wrote down what was said. Your Christianity is cold. There seems to be no room for struggling Christians, Christians who feel distant from God. It's never good enough. It seems like no one can live up to God's expectations. Your Christianity is just cold, demanding, and judgmental. I... uh, was sobered to hear those words. Um, I wonder if you've ever heard something like that before. If anyone's responded to you like that before. Maybe uh, an unbeliever whom you're trying to uh, witness to, or uh, maybe it's a a fellow Christian that uh, you've come and tried to address. Maybe, Maybe you've felt on the other end of that before. Maybe you've felt like uh, uh, my friend who said this. Maybe you think that this morning. Maybe your general view of Christianity is it's, it's, it's cold. Um, I say that because I think um, these verses this morning uh, shed light on uh, whether or not that... Uh, Indictment is true. Uh, in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, we, in a sense, sort of have a summary of the Bible, and uh, we have a recognition of who's at the center of the Bible, who's at the center of Christianity, namely Jesus. So, with that, let's read the first two verses of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Let's pray. Father, we gather and come to You this morning through Your Son by the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. God, we ask that You would allow Your Spirit to powerfully work within us this morning to make Jesus look glorious. Would You help us to consider the majestic glory of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, the, the last time I was asked to preach, uh, it was in July, and if you're keeping score, uh, we actually looked at this text. And uh, I promise I'm not cheating. Um, I thought 
uh, it was worth it to look at these verses again for a few reasons. Uh, the first reason just being, um, uh, I, I think that actually what um, we dealt with in July uh, was, uh, I, I think what the author's saying here is really profound, and I'm not sure the full weight of it really was able to um, come upon us uh, in July just with the limited time we had and, and how fast I had to go through um, verses 2 and 3. And so in a sense, uh, coming again is hopefully just an opportunity to let uh, what we spoke about in July just to fall on us even even heavier. Uh, what we dealt with then, if you were here, was uh, the fact that if, if Jesus is God's, if Jesus is the final redemption, if He's whom God has sent as the final redemption, He's also the final revelation, right? And, and the argument was, how can we possibly better ask for a better revelation than what when, what we've uh, been given? So, uh, another reason is just this: the whole text just seems to demand more attention because, um, uh, frankly, this this is one of the most uh, beautiful texts in the New Testament. Uh, the author of Hebrews has crafted these words very, very intentionally. And it's not as if uh, the other words of the New Testament aren't intentional, but uh, there's a poetic elegance uh, to the first verses in Hebrews. If, if we could all read it in the original Greek, we would even see this more clearly. There, there's alliteration uh, in, in the first verse. So uh, these words have been crafted carefully. And uh, as we read through verses 2 and 3, the roles of Jesus that are mentioned uh, seem to be have, have been chosen very carefully for us to consider. So I think it's worth our time to consider this. And just another reason to return to this text, uh, it just seems like there's, there's never a better thing to do than to consider the question, who, who is Jesus? Uh, Jesus praying in John 17, the text that was read earlier, Jesus prays and says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you, whom you sent. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Christ Jesus. So I don't think it'll be a waste of time to consider these verses. So what I'd like to do is to consider eight roles of Jesus that the author of Hebrews seems to have intentionally uh, selected and, and put before us here. So if Christ, if Christ is a diamond, uh, let's consider eight ways that light shines through and reflects off Him. Just eight ways. And um, we're going to look at just three of them this morning, and we'll look at the other five uh, next time, whenever next time rolls around. All right. So this morning, uh, we'll consider Jesus as the Son, Jesus as the Heir, and Jesus as the Creator. Jesus is the Son, the Heir, and the Creator. So, Jesus as God's Son. Uh, sonship in the Bible has uh, 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 interesting significance. It's a, it's a theme of sorts that develops throughout the Bible. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, you have different people or groups referred to as God's Son. So, for example, in, in Exodus... Uh, God is speaking to Moses, and God is uh, preparing Moses to go and address Pharaoh for the last time uh, after nine plagues are completed. And God says to Moses, preparing him to go to Pharaoh, He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel 
is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Right, so God refers to His collective covenant people that He's about to bring and rescue out of Egypt. He refers to the, the, the group of people as His Son. Right? A few centuries later, uh, this group of people has made it out of Egypt, uh, spent some time in the desert, they're in the Promised Land, and uh, finally King David is on the scene. And uh, once King David, is, uh, his reign has begun, God comes to him and He makes very significant promises to David. And uh, God says, there's, he, he promises that one of David's offspring is always going to reign on the throne. And, and he says this, God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So we have God calling the son, the, 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 the sense of the Davidic king, the person who's ruling over God's covenant people referred to as God's son. So the, the question comes, you know, what's the significance of this? Is this, is this just a, a term of endearment? You know, is this God saying, you know, uh, I just, I really love these people. Uh, I, it's, it's, I love them as if they're my son. Uh, there's, there's certainly, uh, certainly endearment is, is part of that. Uh, God has affection for these people. He has affection for, for the king of Israel. But, but there's more to it than that because in the Bible, the sonship or offspring has more, um, more to it than just that. So when, when you think of a son, we, we really think of a sort of representative, right? Uh, a son is someone who uh, looks like you and talks like you, right? A, a son uh, in ancient times would grow up and uh, take over the, the family trade in a sense, right? Not in a sense, I mean literally, right? And, and they would, uh, in a patriarchal society, right, the son really comes and, and takes the place of, of the Father, right? So uh, we have more than just endearment here. It, it's as if Israel, God's this, this collective group of people, God's covenant people, are, are supposed to represent Him as His Son on earth, right? And the same goes for uh, um, the, uh, the Israelite king, the Davidic king, right? The, the uh, king of Israel is to represent God, right? So... Uh, we have both endearment, but sort of representation, right? But this is all long ago, right? Right? And this is in the context of these verses. Uh, that represents long ago when God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right? But now in these last days, right? Now in these New Testament times, now we have the true Israel. Now we have the true Davidic king, right? This is the ultimate, actual son of God who has come, right? This, the, God the Son, in this sense, totally transcends uh, the Son, God's Son in, in the Old Testament, right? Because Jesus doesn't just represent God's Son, right? Jesus isn't a shadow or a type of God's Son. Jesus is God's unique and eternal Son. So much so that Jesus is God. Jesus is God's Son, the, the Son of the Holy Trinity. Right? In Christianity, we... Uh, at least uh, profess to believe in the Trinity. Um, we don't talk about it that much. We sort of all know it's really important, but we don't really go there. Once once you go there, you're, it seems like you might fall into something that's wrong, so we just sort of acknowledge it and keep it far from us, right? But the uh, the Trinity is essential to understanding who God is, Right? And the fact, the fact that God has now spoken to us by His Son, 
reminds us of something that is essential about God's nature, namely that God is a Father. God is a Father. God isn't like a Father. God is a Father. Right? Father isn't a term that God sort of adopts for Himself just to help us understand Him. Right? Uh, you're not supposed to look at your earthly father to get an idea of what God's like. Right? It's actually the other way around. That, that's supposed to go the other way. All earthly fathers are little image bearers. They're little fathers who are supposed to reflect the image of the Father of fathers. The fact that God is a trinity makes the God of Christianity utterly unique from any other deity that humankind has thought of. Just two examples to kind of think, think through this. Uh, if you just consider sort of the stereotypical single bachelor and the stereotypical family man in our, in our culture. Just, just consider, again, again, stereotypical. I'm not trying to pick on anyone here. Stereotypical single bachelor in our society, right? What's he like? Well, uh, he works to earn a living, right? But he works to earn a living to spend it on himself. Really, right? Uh, this is a guy who has plenty of discretionary time and cash for trips, uh, plenty of time for community sports teams, hunting, golf, right? Plenty of time for video games, plenty of cash for season tickets to this or that sports team, right? Uh, this is someone who's got all the extra professional and college uh, sports cable packages, right? He probably makes a large auto payment on a very nice truck of some sort. Um, he's got a sweet bachelor pad, right? That's probably either one of two things. It's either a total dump, right? Because he doesn't have to clean up, right? It's either that or it's just pristine. Nothing is out of place, right? And no one can even go there and touch anything, right? Seems to be probably one of two extremes, at least in my experience. So that's the stereotypical, stereotypical, typical bachelor, right? But now let's consider the stereotypical family man in our society, right? Now this is a man who works, he, he, he works to earn a living too, but he works to earn a living to support a family, right? So the vast majority of his time and cash goes, goes to things like family needs, right? This is a man who's, who's well acquainted with changing diapers, right? He attends children's programs and activities, Right? He's concerned with the health and welfare and, and education of his children. Right? He probably has household projects to do on the weekends that may or may not have been assigned to him by another member of the household. Uh, he reads books by authors named Dr. Seuss. He coaches Little League sports teams. Right? His, a lot of his uh, cash goes to, towards medical and dental and, and vision bills. Right? He probably makes mortgage payments. Right? And, the, and the ultimate epitome of the family man, right? He probably drives a minivan. <laughs> just, I, I can just say from personal, uh, just my own personal experiences, not one moment of my boyhood was meant dreaming about the day I would drive a minivan off the lot. It just wasn't. It just wasn't, right? But, but we learned something significant about who God is. If he's a father, right? God is not a single bachelor. The God of Christianity is not a single bachelor. The God of Christianity is a joyful father. All right, one other example, a little bit more of a real world example, just to compare God with, with another, uh, another deity, right? One of the, the other options, in a sense, in the, uh, 
the uh, economy of, of religions, right? Uh, if you just take Islam, for example, it's, it's an interesting example because Islam actually explicitly distanced itself from a triune God. Uh, the Quran intentionally distinguishes Allah from the triune God. Just, just two little snippets. Uh, at the beginning of the Quran, we have a text like, that says this, translated in English. It says, Say not Trinity, desist. Uh, it will be far better for you, for God is one. Glory be to Him. Far exalted is He above having a son. At the end of the Quran, there's uh, something similar. It says, Allah is He on whom we all depend. He begets not, nor is He begotten. And none is like Him. Right, so explicitly, no, God, God is not triune. God is not a Father. He, he is one. The triune God of the Bible is not like Allah. He's not a sole individual who exists and acts merely for himself. Right? The triune God is not a modern single bachelor. Right? If you're a young man who's unmarried, right, whether you're an adult or a teenager, right, and if the lifestyle that I described of that young single bachelor, if that sounds attractive to you, now listen, none of the things that I said were inherently wrong, right? So I'm not necessarily picking, but, but if sort of the self-centered life, if that sounds attractive to you, be warned. Because that life might more accurately be described as satanic than Christian. Right? C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, describes what Satan is like. He's, and uh, I think it's very insightful. He says, Satan wants cattle who can, can finally become food. God wants servants that can finally become sons. Satan wants to suck in. God gives out. Satan is empty and he would become filled. God is flow and, and God, or God is full and God flows over. That might not be the life you want to aspire to. And that doesn't just go for bachelors, that goes for bachelorettes, right, too? Uh, who have all recently been liberated, right, to uh, live the same self centered life that the single men have, right? But I don't mean to pick on single people, right? This is possible for marriage. You can live this life married as well, right? You don't have to be single, right? Two people can, can marry, right? Avoid children and, and simply mutually support each other's self-centeredness. And we know it's not even true for just married folks. This is true for us even if we're married with children, right? Family folks, right? Because we know that our spouses and our kids we can start to view them as if they exist merely to support our own interests, right? You can even parent your children in the image of Allah if you want to, right? There are parents who see their kids at times more than servants of them than they do as, as image bearers of the divine creator, right? The triune God of the Bible, Bible is not like Allah. Allah is much more, in Islam, much more associated with will and power, Right? Much more associated with will and power than he is with love, right? And, and rightly so, right? We don't, we don't hear a lot about a love coming from Islam, right? Because who is, who is Allah loving in eternity past? No one, right? If, if Allah is loving, it's a relatively new uh, concept for him, not for the God of the Bible. The triune God is not like the modern 
mainstream God in our culture either, right? Right? It might be common for someone to hear someone in our culture say something like this today. Right? My God is not judgmental. Right? My God doesn't make me feel guilty for the things I do. My God is accepting. I worship a God of love. Right? And you ask someone like this, well, do you believe that God is eternal? And they'll say, yeah, I think God's eternal. And you ask, okay, so do you believe that God really is love? Do you believe God is love? God, love is at the core of his, his being? And they say, oh, well, of course, I believe that part of the Bible. You know, I, I think we should be loving towards others. Well, if God is both loving and eternal, whom was he loving before the foundation of the world? Who is he loving in eternity past? Christianity has the only answer to that question. The Son. God was loving His Son. No other religious system rests on the rock-solid Trinitarian foundation of Christianity. I love how Michael Reeves says it in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. So comparing the triune God to, to the God of other religions, he writes this, How radically and overwhelmingly different is the God of the Bible? Not needy, solitary, and selfish, but bountiful, loving, and, and self-giving at the very heart of who He is. If God is not Father, Son, and Spirit, then He is eminently rejectable, without love, radiance, or beauty. Who would want such a God to have any power or even to exist? But the triune living God of the Bible is beauty. Here is a God we can really want and whose sovereignty we can wholeheartedly rejoice in. By the way, I would love to recommend to you this book. Uh, that's where that quote was from, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. If, if you struggle with the Trinity, if you don't feel like you understand the Trinity, this is a great book, a quick 130-page read. He, he writes very, very well, and uh, the emphasis on, is on the delighting part here. Uh, you will come to the end of this uh, delighting in God much more. There are three copies downstairs if you're interested. So praise God that at the core of who He is, we find a Father who loves a Son. And He loves His Son with so much love that His love spills over with love for us. And let us praise Jesus, God's Son. Right? And in a sense, all the roles that follow this one in, in our text um, are subordinate. There's, there's, there's subpoints, so to speak, to the role Christ has as God's Son. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he, appointed, he, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So we turn now to considering Jesus as the heir. <clears throat> there's a natural link here, right? Because uh, who are heirs? Uh, children are heirs, right? And we've just considered who is God's Son is, right? So now we look at the heir, right? And what's the big deal with Jesus as heir? It's the all things part of the Jesus as heir, right? I think I said in July, this is a very unique inheritance. Everyone gets a very large inheritance, whether it's a, you know, a huge bank account or just an Afghan, but, but everybody, everybody inherits something. But Jesus' inheritance is, is totally Totally different. Jesus inherits all things. 
Uh, we start to understand Jesus as heir better as we look ahead to a couple other verses. If you look ahead to verse 5, we see that this was prophesied long ago, right? Uh, Jesus as the heir of all things is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise of Psalm 2.8, right? Psalm 2.8 reads, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Right? That was the promise to David, right? Jesus is the heir of all things because he is the fulfillment of the covenant promise made to David that David would never lack a son to sit on his throne. That he would have a son that would reign forever. Right? Well, we don't even have to look as far as verse 5. We can look right in uh, the context of these own verses, verses 2 and 3, to find that Christ is worthy to inherit all things because of his dual roles of, of creator and redeemer. He, he's worthy. He's, he's the only one worthy to inherit all things because of his roles as creator and redeemer. <coughs> Excuse me. As creator, creator of the world, he's just naturally the heir of all things, right? Read, read in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him, right? Everything in the physical universe, every micron and every planet, right? Every king and every slave, they all exist for Christ. They all exist for Christ. They all exist to Christ. We also see this in his role as Redeemer, right? Because Christ doesn't just inherit a physical universe. Christ inherits a, a spiritual universe, right? Uh, it is said that souls are part of Christ's inheritance. Paul, in, and when he's praying for the Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, he prays that their eyes would be opened to see the riches of Christ's glorious inheritance in the saints, that they would see Christ's glorious inheritance in the saints. Christians are Christ's inheritance, right? They're His glorious inheritance, right? And listen, this isn't amazing because we're the most valuable things in the universe. Can't Rest assured, we are not the most valuable things in the universe. God is the most valuable person in the universe. The reason this is amazing is because the most amazing person in the universe makes us His treasure. He makes us His treasure. Souls are part of Christ's inheritance. Some people, some people walk away from God because of their desires for stuff. Right? We see in the parable of the soils. Right? Some people walk away from Christ because of the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. Right? We think we ought to be the heirs of all things, right? We will spend our whole lives acquiring and acquiring and acquiring just to lose it all, right? And, and it's ironic that it's those who forsake everything except for Christ. Those, ironically, are the people who gain everything, right? If the, or if, if the Spirit Himself, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him. That's Romans 8. We consider Satan, right? Satan exalts himself, right? He, he tries to exalt himself above God uh, to acquire all that he can. And Satan ultimately gets nothing, right? God humbles himself below 
God. And he seeks to give himself for the sake of others. And he gets everything. Jesus is the heir of all things. But we ought to beware of pride and of uncontrolled consumption. We ought to take our pride very seriously as well as our uncontrolled consumption. So praise God that Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the, he's the prophesied heir of the Davidic promises. He is the, the natural heir as the creator of all things. And He is the rightful heir as the Redeemer who has purchased our salvation. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. We turn to Jesus as Creator. When we consider Jesus as the Creator of all things, this is where His divinity is established, perhaps more than in any other place. right? Because if, if Jesus' is heir kind of has connections with His, his humanity, right? the uh, fulfillment of uh, the promises to David, Jesus as Creator much more recognizes His divinity. Right? According to the Apostle John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Now, it takes a Trinitarian framework to make any sense out of those verses, right? The Word, Christ, He's both with God and He is God. God he can be with God and be God, right? <clears throat> well, the answer is to the Trinity, right? In creation, we have all three members of the Trinity working, right? You have God the Father willing and initiating and, and even leading, if you will, the, the creative activity, right? You have the Spirit. He's, he's completing the work of creation. It's, he's uh, hovering over the face of the waters is the verse in, uh, is what it says in one, verse 1-2 one, of Genesis. Uh, but then you have God the Son carrying out the creative activity, right? After all, God speaks creation. He speaks creation into existence. And we've just read John refers to Jesus as the Word, right? The Son is the one through whom God created the world. And John goes on, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. It's hard to think of anything that establishes Jesus as God more than the fact that He is the Creator, right? The ability to create is only reserved for God, right? And anyone who seriously claims to have created the world is someone we put in the category of insane, right? Uh, interesting enough, the only thing more ridiculous than, than claiming <clears throat> that someone besides God created the world is to claim that no one created the world, but which also happens to be a common belief today, right? And I don't know, I know I don't need to go through all this. You've heard things like this a lot of times, but just one short illustration. The, the moon is 211,000 miles away, right? It would take 27 years to walk to the moon, right? If you could go at light speed, it would take you one and a half seconds to get to the moon, right? Now, if you could go at light speed to Pluto, right, which we recently found out may or may not be a planet, uh, it would take you four hours at light speed, right? That's 4,320 years walking to Pluto, and we haven't even left our galaxy, right? We, we realize that the immensity of our, of our of the universe, uh, of all the things God has created from small to big, 
not even yet to consider the fact of what it would take to create and sustain life, just the, the, uh, the specifics that it would take to create. This is just not an, an accident, right? There's just no way. It is, it's, it's beyond belief and beyond possibility that we even exist. Right? Someone made the universe. And it's Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the heir of all things, that the author of Hebrews is telling us. He is our Maker. The language used here, um, <clears throat> through whom God created the world, actually seems to harken back to the Old Testament a little bit. Uh, in, in the Old Tes- Testament, right, and again, right, we're, we're comparing here, we have this in, in our verses, right? This is, we're comparing long ago and in these last days, right? And God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, and now He's spoken by His Son, right? So back, this is long ago, right? Um, it was considered true. I mean, you, you just look through passages like in uh, Psalms and in, in Proverbs, right? The thought was God created the world through wisdom, is what people would say, right? So if you read passages like Proverbs 8, 22 through 31, what you have is, is a sort of wisdom taking on a personification, like pretending to be a person, and then wisdom is speaking about what it was like to create, about having the world created through him or her. I'm not sure what wisdom would be classified as, right? So, uh, wisdom is considered to be cons- is the thing through which God created the world. So, uh, jumping back to Hebrews, though, it, it, so it's almost as if long ago our fathers understood that the world was created through wisdom, right? Right? Wisdom was a personified, right? It was something or someone to know and to live by, right? But now we have something greater than wisdom, right? Wisdom is merely a personification, right? But the Son, God's Son, existed before the world began in eternity. We see here the glory of the divinity of Christ, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the heir of all things, He is our Creator. He's our Creator. And why should we rejoice? Well, because God spoke long ago by the prophets. Long ago, God spoke by the prophets at many times and in many places. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, through whom He created the world. Just... Just consider just the wonder of, of this reality. Okay? We don't want to miss how astonishing this is. Okay? The people reading this letter to the Hebrews, sort of a sermon letter to the Hebrews, the people reading this, just a few decades before they first read this, right? the Creator, the one through whom the world was created, He was put to death on a cross in Jerusalem. The Creator... Right? This, this, this is just decades from when this letter was first re- written. Right? These are people who were converted under the preaching of the apostles. Okay? Decades ago, the one who this author is calling the Creator was put to death on a cross in Jerusalem. He wasn't put to death because God is a bloodthirsty tyrant. He wasn't put to death because Jesus was merely a misunderstood promoter of love. Right? He wasn't put to death so that we could spend our lives in, in self-focused indulgence. Right? Jesus, the creator of the universe, was put to death on a cross because ultimately we are not okay. 
We will spend our whole lives living for pleasure, for power, for recognition. Right? We'll, we'll worship sports, food, self-image. We'll worship sex, money, recreation, and hobbies. Right? We'll take things that are intended to be good gifts to us and we will love them more than we love God. We will sin to get those things and we will sin if we are not given those things. Well, we'll we're people who will intentionally spend our whole lives single just to avoid the obligation of having to sacrifice anything for another human being. We're the type of people who will get married but avoid children lest we have the natural obligation that goes to serving other younger human beings. Or, or we'll get married and we'll have kids only to become embittered against them for not serving our own interests or living according to our own design, our own convictions, and our own plans. Right? We are the kind of people who have the audacity to say to the Creator of the universe, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you have revealed to me in the Bible. I want fill in the blank. And I'll get it no matter what. Jesus, the creator of the universe, died on a cross because we have chosen Satan, the ultimate self-obsessed father over the father of all fathers who's been loving his son for eternity. And because we have chosen that Father, God will justly and righteously send us to hell with the Father we've chosen. But because Jesus died on a cross, because the Creator of the universe died on a cross in Jerusalem a few decades before this text was written, we can be forgiven from our our satanic, self-obsessed tirade, and we can become fellow heirs with the Son who's been loved from eternity. We can be forgiven today. You can be forgiven today by turning from your sin and placing your trust in Christ. Right? We, we are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our efforts, our, our ability to to make ourselves like God, make ourselves acceptable to God. We, we are so far past that point. right? We are not saved by our works. We are saved by trusting in Christ's perfect works, His perfect life, and His perfect sacrifice for sin. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So Jesus is the Son of of God. Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the one through whom the universe was created, and we're only getting started understanding who Jesus is. So, considering what my friend said to me this summer, those sobering words, is Christianity cold? Is there no room in Christianity for struggling Christians? Is there no room for Christians who feel distant from God? Is it true that we can never be good enough? Is it true that we can never live up to God's expectations? That He has set a bar so high that it's unattainable? Is God simply demanding and judgmental? 
No. No. Now listen, I might misrepresent God. I might have misrepresented God. I don't know. That's possible. We, we are certainly possible of misrepresenting God. But you might simply hate the God that undermines your self-centered universe. Christianity, though, is not cold. Because in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we're reminded that God is a loving Father. And He has always been a loving Father. No other worldview in the world can consistently claim that God is love. They can't. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we're reminded that, that God keeps His promises. Right? The promise to establish the throne of David, right? to give all things to the Son of David, the nations, this has been fulfilled in Jesus, who is the inheritor of all things. Right? The God who keeps promises over millennium uh, certainly keeps His other promises. Right? In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we're also reminded that Jesus considers people the treasures of His inheritance. He considers Christians, believers, the treasures of His inheritance for eternity. Right? This is not because we're so great. This is because God is so kind. And finally, in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, we're reminded that Jesus is the sovereign Creator. He made us and He knows us. God does have authority over your life. But praise God that that is the authority of a loving Father. Let's pray. God, we do not deserve Your kindness. God, we did not even deserve how You spoke to our fathers long ago through the prophets. But God, You have now even revealed Yourself through Your Son, Your own Son, who came and who offered His life for us, who paid the penalty of our sin for us. God, we praise You and we thank You. Truly, You are the only God worthy of praise. Lord, would You help us to be like You? Would You help us to reject our tendency to live satanic lies consuming and using others? Would You help us not to live according to lies, but according to truth? God, we thank You for Your Son. It's in Christ alone that our hope is found. Help us to believe that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.